Today we're going to study Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. This is a section of scripture that has so much assurance, so much comfort to the heart of a believer. This is the scripture where you go to where things don't make sense. This is the scripture where you go to. This is the passage where you go to when things are difficult. When you feel the pressure of life, when you feel things don't make sense, you go to Romans chapter 8. It's a large portion of scripture we're going to do today, but we're going to go fast, but stay with me. I'm going to read Romans 8, 1 to 11. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but, and this is key, according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life, and not only life, life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, He does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There is so much here, but I want to start off by giving you a few statistics. The question is, what governs your mind? What dominates your mind? And I want to start by giving you some statistics on what percentage of people spend, how much time do people spend on the internet? Okay? And think about this for yourselves as well. Think about you personally. 7% of people say they spend no time on the internet. 8% of people spend or log on once a week. 6% say they log on only a few times a week. Most of us here would say we log on 48%. Sorry, we log on a few times a day. That leaves 31% of people, one-third of Americans, are constantly on the Internet. The question is, what dominates your mind? 
because these social platforms and the internet, they're not competing against each other. They're competing against your time and they're competing against your sleep. They rather you be on their platform and they're mining all of your data and they're mining that to gratify your flesh and they're competing against your sleep. And I would argue today that there's a better way. I would argue that the best way is to put down your social media consumption device, open up your printed Bible, okay, which has, believe it or not, unlimited battery life. You can take it anywhere. You can leave it on the beach. No one's going to take it. And, and this is what is most pleasing to God. Because the difference between a true believer of Jesus who has eternal life in the Spirit and someone without the Holy Spirit is this. Because we have come to love God's Word. Because we love the author of God's Word. So, let me give you a very 10,000-foot overview of the book of Romans. Because that's going to help us set up the context of what we're going to try to do today. The book of Romans is all about God's righteousness and our, and our desperate need of God's righteousness. We are desperate for his gracious provision, and he has provided a complete, perfect Savior. The book of, Roman, book of Romans teaches that Christ is no half-Savior. Romans chapter 1, and we're going to go fast. We're going to go fast. We've been doing this with our Bible study group for two and a half years. We're going to try to do this in, we're going to try to do this in maybe five minutes. Romans chapter 1. This is where we see the total depravity of the human mind and the human soul. The mind has become useless because of sin, worthless. Paul says it's a non-functioning mind. This is where we see the theme of the book, that it is God's righteousness is revealed by the cross, through Christ. And if you lack righteousness, you will receive his wrath. Romans chapter 2 dismantles any concept or any argument against a work-based salvation. Romans 3. This is where Paul throws everyone under the bus. That no one is righteous. No one seeks God, and it is utter sinfulness which permeates all of humanity. This is where we see the effects of the total corruption of sin on the human mind as well as the body. But we see hope, and our hope is in Christ. And that we are saved by grace through faith, through the substitutionary atonement of Christ, written out through Scripture alone. Romans 5 teaches us the benefits of having received once and for all Christ's righteousness. That his death permits us, believers, to persevere. This is the hupomeno that we've heard so often about. Hupo meaning under and meno to abide. Literally means to abide under godly given pressure so that we do not give up. That's Romans chapter 5 is explained to us, that we must remain in the fight, remain faithful. And it challenges us, Paul constantly challenges us to rejoice 
even in the most difficult of situations. And he commands us to look, to set our gaze solely on the cross and to hold fast to our assurance of salvation. Then we come to Romans chapter 6, and there is so much in Romans chapter 6. This is where we see the clear doctrine of repentance. This is what God expects the sinner to do, to repent, to turn away from your sins, to repent and to believe without any damage control. You're not making any excuses. You have repented and you've said, Lord, have mercy on my soul. Paul also destroys any loophole for anyone seeking to find an excuse or a justification to sin. None are given. Because if your mind and if your flesh has been set free and you are no longer slaves to sin, you have a new habit and you have a new desire. And that is to become more and more like the Savior through his word. We also see the difference between wages and sin. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. We see that a wage includes a bonus, but a gift is only pure generosity. A gift is just benevolence. We as sinners deserve death because the wages of sin is death, but we have received through the cross glorious, generous, benevolent salvation. Then we come to Romans chapter 7. This is where Paul is being very pastoral. He's writing about habitual sin and that how we need to make sure that we are not owned by anything, that no sin has taken control over us. He encourages us never to give up and that, yes, indeed, we will struggle in the flesh. We will struggle with our sanctification, but we are not alone because we have the Holy Spirit. And this is where we come to Romans chapter 8. As I said before, this is the section. This is the chapter where you need to go often. This is the chapter you go where you need comfort. And this is the chapter where you should highlight in all different types of colors, all different sorts of colors throughout the years. Pick a color, highlight it, and then after, as you have matured in Christ, go back and color it a different color. Because we have the Holy Spirit, Paul teaches that we are untouchable in Christ. That we have power, hope, and permanence in the Spirit. But today we're going to focus on the first 11 verses. And the title of the sermon is Life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit. So we did that. That wasn't that, wasn't that painful. But today we're going to see three results of a life radically, and this is the key word, three results of a life radically transformed by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to take a look at a life free from sin. That is the first result, verses 1 to 4. The second result, a life of obedience and submission to God's word, verses 5 to 11. And finally, the third result, a life of e life eternal in Christ Jesus, verses 9 to 11. 
Because a true believer has eternal life in the Spirit, because he or she has been united with the Holy Spirit, baptized and grafted into God's family, they are guaranteed eternal life. And we cling to that assurance. And the result is a life which is free from sin. So let me read you the first verse. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This, therefore, is an adverb which introduces one of the greatest Bible verses written down in Scripture. If you ever have an opportunity, an open mic, to say just one verse to the entire world, this is the verse you go to. This, therefore, introduces actually the result of a consequence, which Paul referred back to Romans chapter 7, verse 6. Romans chapter 7, verse 6 says, But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What Paul is saying here, and this is the key, so you have to you can't miss it, that there is newness of spirit, that something has changed. Something now exists that never existed before. And there's a new spiritual environment, there's a new desire, and that those who have set their hope and their trust in the cross have become a new creation in Christ Jesus. And that this new creation has been judged and has been found not guilty. That there is now no condemnation. And notice before that there was condemnation and something had to have happened. Something had to have been changed. And what is that? That is the cross. Because you were condemned in your flesh, even if you never thought you were condemned or even if you never were at, and even if you thought you were never at enmity, Against God. But holy God stood because He is holy. He had to judge and He had to atone for every single sin. And that is solely the cross of Christ that atones for it. But let me give you a little more meat around this concept or the doctrine of condemnation. Condemnation is the idea of judgment or legal sentence. Condemnation, if I were to be as simple as possible in Christian vocabulary terms, condemnation is exactly the opposite of justification. That we who are in Christ have been made right and have been justified. Condemnation is the opposite. This is a Paul word. It appears only three times in the New Testament. It appears here, Romans 5.16 and 5.18. Condemnation is punishment, damnation, with a legal liability. All we need to know, and if there's one thing you're going to take home with you from condemnation, that it is divine judgment. Because we sinned, we were under divine judgment. A judgment which was coming down from heaven. And Paul elaborates this and explains it more in the second verse. In verse 2, he writes, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, and this is where we say Jesus is the only way, has set you free 
from the law of sin and of death. This may go over us here today, or this might not be all interesting news, but for the first century believer or the first century Jew who repented and now is putting their trust in God's grace, this would be something unknown to them because they had spent their whole entire life trying to keep the law. This is where we rejoice because those in Christ Jesus have escaped God's punishment. And it is His Spirit which has set them, set us free from death onto life. Careful to say that this grace or God's grace is not a license to sin. We have been set free from sin, but we have been set as a slave of righteousness. So we're, our lives must be a life where we are seeking to please God, to honor God. Because Christianity is liberation from the slavery of sin. But now we have a functional purpose. And we must submit to God's word. We must obey his word. This no condemnation also gives us, and there's so much comfort here, this no condemnation also gives us the peace of God that we don't need to feel guilty for our past sins. The guilt is gone. We are free. We don't, a Christian never needs to be haunted by the memories of their past, of what they've done or who they were. Because now, as I said before, they're a new creation in Christ. Because before we were weak, but now we have the Holy Spirit and now we have the authority, the ministry of the third person of the Godhead, and he will never abandon us. And Paul takes his reasoning even further in the next two verses, in verses 3 and 4. And he explains how we now have freedom from condemnation. And as I'm reading this, make sure you get the gospel here. You have to see the gospel. Verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. How? By sending his own son and the likeness of sinful flesh. With a very specific purpose, and notice this, and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. And what is the outcome of God's sovereign grace? We see it in verse 4. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And don't miss the second half, the second half, the half of this verse. Because Paul is going to add a strong admonition to his readers. Not to walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. First thing, do you see the entire gospel here? Do you see how specific it is? We see sin. We see law versus grace. We see the cross. We saw the need of blood atonement, blood sacrifice. We saw that the cross atoned. And then we see sanctification, or a life that is death. But the gospel has so much more. Our experiences must lead us back to God's word. Because God is the monergistic initiator of the entire salvation process. 
It's not synergistic. It is not us and God, but it is God reaching down from heaven and saving sinners who would otherwise prefer to love his sin. Because we were dead in our trespasses. This is the whole chapter of Ephesians chapter 2. That we were totally dead in our trespasses. And totally dead means exactly that. Totally dead. Because the law, and this is where they were going. This is where before the cross, this is what they tried to do. The law could not produce righteousness. And that's exactly what verse verse 3 says. For what the law could not do. The law just couldn't do it. The simplest way to summarize the whole Old Testament rites could be said that the Mosaic law never intended to justify. It was always the cross. The Old Testament, the Old Testament law failed to produce righteousness. However, the purpose was to identify sin, to magnify it, and then for us to realize that we were condemned by it. Because if you could, if there was one person who was able to actually keep the entire law, then that person would have been morally perfect. And that would just negate the entirety of the cross. And the only person who never sinned, that was our Lord Jesus. Because life, the life of Christ was enough to meet all of the requirements of the law. Not just a few, but all of it. This is the might of Christ's righteousness. And since we are talking about a work-based salvation, I want to touch about that. Because no one's going to come up to you and say, oh, it's because we keep the Sabbath that we're going to go to heaven. Or because of circumcision, we are destined to heaven. What they'll tell you is, oh, my family built this church. Or I'm a member of this church. I have a tattoo. I have a cross. Or I was baptized as a child. And the one that you're going to hear often, I've attended church every single Sunday of my life. All that is important, but that is what is an inward, that is an outward display of what the Holy Spirit has done inwardly in our lives. Not the tattoos. I'm not saying go get tattoos. (laughs) But you'll always hear it. Only God's grace saves because works were never enough. That's why God is the initiator. And he's the one who reached down from heaven while we were still at war against God, while we were still dead spiritually. And God is the one who sent his son. And he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. This is where liberals would say, in sinful flesh. But Paul is being very, very clear. It is the likeness of sinful flesh because Jesus was fully human in every single way but without sin. This is the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ. And Paul was very careful about his choice of words. He did not say Christ came in sinful flesh because that would imply sin in him. It is his incarnation. It is in in his incarnation that Christ became fully man He took on the outward appearance of sinful flesh and thus remained completely sinless. And I have to answer this question because it comes up often. Could Christ have sinned? 
Could our Lord Jesus sin? The answer is a resounding, absolutely not. Christ was 100% God and 100% man. And there was never a division or a dividing of the persons, nor a confounding of natures. Because Christ was fully God, in his divine nature, he could have never possibly have sinned. His human nature remained perfect and strong and never fallen or unfallen. And his resurrection on the third day validated his moral perfection. And that is our example. That is why we look to Christ. And that is why Paul writes in verse 4, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul makes it very clear. There's a very clear intentional division because, between walking in the flesh and walking in the Spirit. Because one of the results of a life walking in the Spirit is living a life free of sin. Because we fear sin. We have understood the sting of sin. 1 John 3 says sin is lawlessness. Sin is satanic. The book of Hebrews says sin deceives and entangles. Romans 5.12 says, and this is where we were all going, sin ultimately kills. That is why we are so grateful for our Lord. Because we are no longer enslaved to sin. And that believers have lived in the past in their sin but now have passed into newness of spirit through Christ. And that is why a life radically transformed by the Spirit must have as a result a life free from sin. And we understand, and Paul understands this in Romans chapter 7, that we will never attain perfection, that we will still fall. What's important is that we're always getting closer and closer to resembling the Son, and that when we fall, we pray, we ask forgiveness, and then we get back straight into our Bible, and we continue in the path. And if you've ever heard just a single sermon from our pastor, you know that a life free from sin must submit to his word, written by his spirit. And as I said before, we, we believe in divine inspiration. And if you look forward with you is a difficult situation. You will feel a little bit of a push inside. You might not necessarily agree with what is written. But we have to go through here because this is written for our benefit. We can't just jump over the sections or pick and choose sections. We have to be faithful to inspired scripture. So read with me verses 5 to 8. For those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the flesh. Sorry. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That would have been pretty bad. <laughs> and pay attention to this. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. That is, that but. This is an adversative conjunction. This is clearly contrasting the flesh and the spirit. Verse 6, For the mind set on the flesh is death. But, another but, the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Why? How is this possible? Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, 
for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Verse 8, And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul puts a final nail in his argument. If you are in the flesh, you cannot please God. There's a lot of doctrine here. There's a, there's a lot. This section clearly shows God's grace, God's undeserved mercy to sinners because we never really deserved his mercy because this section puts the entire responsibility of sin on the sinner and there's no way around it. Let's start by looking at verses 5 and 6 and we need to be very logical and very mathematical here. A equals B, B equals C. Mind of flesh, death. Mind of the spirit, Life, not only life, because we could have only had life, life and peace. Verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. So we need to look at mind and flesh. The mind is very easy. The mind is the seat of mental and emotional activity. It's the way of thinking. It's your thoughtful planning. This is what you use. You use your mind to evaluate the situation that's presented right in front of you. That's pretty straightforward. Now we need to look at the flesh. The flesh in the Greek is the word sarks. This is a Paul word. It's used 75 times in the New Testament, 22 times in the book of Romans, and 15, sorry, 16 times in the book of Galatians. Let me give you a full theological definition of the flesh. Flesh is the ugly complex of human sinful desires. This includes all ungodly motives, purposes, words, and actions. In a simpler terms, this is the entire fallen human being. I want you to feel the weight of Paul's word, the flesh. The best verse that clarifies this word, written by the same author, Paul, is seen in Galatians 5.17. For Galatians 5.17. I'll just read it to you. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Here you see the contrast. It's very clear. For, those, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. You know what the flesh is? The flesh is that scar that will never go away. When I was growing up, um, I went through a patio glass door. My dog was barking outside. Um, I ran. I cut myself here. I cut myself here. Blood everywhere. Um, I still have a really bad scar here. And that scar will never go away. Not this side of heaven. When we get to heaven, as per 1 Corinthians 15, we will have heavenly bodies designed, specifically designed to worship Christ for all of eternity. But this side of heaven, that flesh is still with us. One of my favorite commentators wrote, the flesh in the godliest Christian 
has an incorrigibly evil or beyond reform. As the flesh and the vilest sinner, all efforts to reform the flesh or purify it are in vain. The flesh has no value to the believer, but it is still there. And we will never be done away with it. What Paul is saying here, to sum it up, to live according to the flesh is to be ruled and controlled by that evil complex. Not just dominated by it, but being ruled by it. And Paul keeps going. And Paul is going to go one step lower. It's going to get worse and worse for the, believer, for the unbeliever. And Paul's not going to be subtle, and nor can I. I have to be honest to the text. And he wants every single one of us here to feel uncomfortable. And he wants those who have been saved by grace to feel grateful. There are four key terms or statements in verses 7-8 that I want to touch on. First one, hostile. Second one, does not subject. Third one, not able. And the last, cannot please God. And we're going to look at each one of these. Let me read it to you, 7 and 8. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile. That's our first one. Hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself, the second one, to the law of God. For it's not even able to do so. Notice it's not just inability. Because the next verse utterly destroys any hope for the sinner. Because the flesh, those who are in the flesh, cannot please God. That's the fourth one. Hostile. This is an active enemy who is on the attack. This is someone, this is shots fired. This is someone who wants to hurt you. When you hear this, you understand someone wants to do evil to you. They want to kill you. Subject. This would be a military term. This would be to arrange under or place in line in a warlike military attack formation. What Paul is saying here, not subject itself, this is pure anarchy against God's law. This is rebellion. We would understand it as rebellion. The third one, for it is not even able to do so. No ability whatsoever. This is absolute negation. It's like you're asking someone to jump off of a building and fly. They can jump off, but I guarantee you, gravity's going to win 100% of the time because they're, they just can't do it. You can't ask someone to fly. And as if verse 7 wasn't bad enough, we have verse 8, cannot please God. This is where we see that the sinner can never win favor with God or satisfaction. Because left on their own, this section makes it very clear that sinners go from bad to worse. Paul clearly is arguing here to point that all humans are totally depraved, that no one would go to God for forgiveness. Because they always love their sin more than anything else. Sinners plan to sin. They take enjoyment in sinning. But when we have the Holy Spirit, and this is our admonishment, 
But when we have the Holy Spirit in us, our mind is set on a life full of peace, a God-honoring life. That is why I'm contending here that if you are born again, you will have and you must have a life full of obedience and submission to God's word. Because having been freed from the dominion of sin, you can't go back. You don't want to go back because you've seen God's grace. Colossians 3.1 says, Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand. Sin must never have mastery over you. And I want to tell Cornerstone here, it is the ministry of every single person here today to be in the Word. You have to be in the Word. And if you ever see someone straying away, you got to call them back. This is the ministry of every single Christian here to be, to be so much rich in the Bible that there is no possibility of being attacked from our attacker. And I want to encourage you to enjoy your time in the Word, to enjoy your encounter with our God. Make it something pleasant. If you like tea or if you like coffee, get yourself a nice, comfortable chair. Have your Bible and pray through your prayer list. And pray through the character, the name of God, and what he has done for you. Because as we've seen today, a true believer has life radically transformed by the Spirit from darkness of flesh onto the Spirit. And we saw the first result was a life free from sin, and the second, a life of obedience and submission to God's Word. And now we come to the third result, a life eternal in Christ Jesus. Having described in contrast to the believer with those who are still in the flesh, Paul now offers four tests or confirmations that you are a believer. This is where we today, we get strength. This is where we can say we will not buckle. This is where we are bold in our Christian testimony and in our Christian lives. This is where we are more than conquerors. And this is, this is what helps us get through the day. Because we stand firm in Christ. And we do not give an inch to the flesh. Read with me verses 9 to 11. Verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And now we'll see the first confirmation. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. The second. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, and this is the other side of the Satan, the other side of the coin that Paul just mentioned, he does not belong to him. Verse 10. The third confirmation. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of Christ's righteousness. Verse 11. This is the final confirmation. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and you must have the spirit taking up residence in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And this is the main point of the sermon, if you're writing it down, that we have life through the spirit who dwells us, who dwells in us, and we have 
permanence of eternal life, permanence in our assurance. I'll be honest, this is this last section, this could be an entire sermon right here. But for today, what we're going to look at is life eternal in Christ. Verse 9, this is the whole section of John chapter 3, where Nicodemus went um, in secret talking to, to our Lord and saying, what must I do to have eternal life? And Christ answered, you must be born again. Paul is saying something very clear. You have to have the Holy Spirit to be Christian. And that every Christian has been baptized by the Holy Spirit into his family. This is where we know that God will never abandon his children, no matter where he takes us. 1 John 4.13 says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. 2 Timothy 2.19 Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And in verse 11, Paul wants to make a point. If the Spirit dwells in you, and this is the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, we also will be raised from the dead if we have the Spirit dwelling in us. Paul wants wants to make it very clear. And in the Greek, there's only purpose. Nothing is written in the Greek without intentional purpose. And if you notice, this is where you see the longest name of the Holy Spirit in the entire New Testament. The name that Paul uses, the Spirit of whom? who raised Jesus from the name. Paul wants to make it very strategically clear. You must have the Holy Spirit. And this Spirit must dwell in you. And this term is fascinating. This term means to take up residence, to make one's home among among us, to live in, to inhabit. This is the answer that Paul When he posed this question in Romans 7.24, Wretched man that I am, who shall set me free? Paul is answering his question. And he says, it is the Holy Spirit that sets you free. Because when you have the Holy Spirit, you are alive in Christ. And there are promises that we can hold firm to. And these promises, and I'll just give you a few of them. All of these were taken from the book of Romans. We have freedom. We have strength for service. We have victory over sin. We do not need to sin. We have guidance when we think there is no more guidance left. We have assistance in prayer. Sometimes we don't even know what to pray about. But we open the word and we pray back scripture. And then we have full assurance of salvation. And all of this leads to assurance. Because we need to make sure every single person here leaves having this question answered. And it's a difficult question. Will you make it to heaven? Paul wants to answer this question. And he wants to make it very clear. Those who have been set free from the flesh, have accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, will make it to heaven. Because, and and. I'll give you this example. And I once heard a testimony. 
It was a mighty testimony. It was a powerful testimony. But it ended with this single comment that just destroyed anything that was said. I am saved now. But what will happen in a week or in a few months, I don't know. That's not understanding the proper doctrine of the cross. That is not understanding where we came from. And that's what Paul did when he took us from the darkest of lows, the darkest of darks, to understand what the flesh really meant. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The permanence of salvation refers to the question of whether all Christians inevitably reach the final stage of salvation or whether it is possible for any of them to fall away. And Paul says, absolutely not. And he backs it up with Romans 5.10. For if while we were sinners, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Second John 2.2 says, the truth will abide in us forever. The truth that we have, this truth that we have will be with us, not for a short time, not for a week, but forever. And that God will preserve his elect. And this is the verse we go to, Philippians 1.6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And throughout your Christian life, we have to go back to these verses. We have to have that confidence that what he started, when we were in the flesh, when we were at war, when we were in our sins, when we were at lowest of lows, what Christ started, he will finish. There's no arrogance in saying, I'm a believer and I'm going to heaven. That is our assurance. That's where we get a proper understanding of God's sovereign grace. That we did nothing to earn eternal life and you cannot do anything to lose it. Because how can we have eternal life only for a few weeks? That just doesn't make any sense. Bringing everything to a close. A true believer will see three results in a life radically, and that's the key word, radically transformed by the Holy Spirit. They will see a life free from sin, a life of complete obedience and submission to God's word, and life eternal in Christ. Paul wants to make sure that you here today see the proof of a new changed life in Christ. And the question is that I asked in the beginning, what dominates you? Where does your time go? Are you living a life all for the glory of Christ? Are you living a life with kingdom oriented? Are you investing the stewardship and the resources that God has given you to promote his gospel? Are you praying for their loved ones and for your neighbors? And we understand we can always do a little better. And if you've just fallen off or if you need to just say, I need to commit back daily to my time, my daily personal Bible study, if I want to commit back to it, then just start again. 
Because it's never too late. And that's the beauty of God's grace. That's where we see the loving hand of God. I want to end with this quote from Martin Luther, who perfectly summarizes this whole section better than I could have ever done. Luther said, It is impossible for a man to be a Christian without having Christ and the Spirit of Christ. And if he has Christ, he has at the same time all that is Christ. What gives peace to the conscience is that by faith our sins are no longer ours, but Christ on whom we have nailed them to the cross. This is our prayer for every single one of you here today, that you have forgotten the flesh. You are aware of where you came from, so you do not fall back to the sin that which once entangled you and that you set your gaze upon the cross and that you continue to be faithful, holding on to the assurance of salvation, to the permanence of salvation, because that is grace upon grace upon grace. Let me pray for you today. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word. Lord, we commit these people to you to receive Christ, to resemble Christ, to represent Christ in their neighborhoods, in their families, in every single place, in their workplaces, for them to be strong Christians. Our prayer right now is that we set our hearts towards you and that you may change anything which is displeasing in our lives. Strengthen us through your Spirit. Help us not to be weighed down or buckle under the trials of this life. Help us to cling to your word and to your promises to free us from bondage. And if there are anyone, if there are any here today who are still in their flesh, may the Spirit draw them, may your Spirit draw them to you so that they may see the grace that you have given us and transformed our lives and that this mercy is everlasting. Finish the message in our hearts as we prepare now to hear a sermon from our pastor. And it is in Christ's matchless name that we pray. Amen.